Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up our series in the book of Micah, and today's episode is looking at chapter six and is entitled Micah and the Difficult Task of Justice. Today we are studying Micah chapter six, verses one to eight. And over the past several years of study, I have to tell you that Micah 6.8 is the closest verse we have to a thesis statement for all of the writings of the prophets. So this passage that we are about to cover is of utmost importance because if you can understand what Micah is trying to communicate and what Micah is expressing, well, then you can better understand what all of the prophets in the Bible are expressing as well. So with that in mind, let's turn to Micah chapter 6 and see what Micah writes. These are his words. Hear what the Lord says. And so God begins to speak to the people of Judah. And God says to Judah, rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Micah in turn turns to the nation of Judah and says the same thing as God. Micah says, hear you mountains, the controversy or accusation of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an accusation with his people and he will contend with Israel. So what's happening is God is asking the unbiased nonpartisan mountains who have witnessed the history of Israel and Judah to make a judgment as to who Israel has been and who God has been. God is bringing a third party in to decide who has been just in this situation. Not only that, but Micah hears God setting up this courtroom with the mountains as judge and agrees that this is a good idea. And so the prophet Micah tells the people of Judah, hey, you are about to be put on trial. Now it's here that the trial begins in verse 3 when God says to the mountains and to Judah, O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. And then God cites three different stories to talk about who God has been. In verse 4, God says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God here is referring to the story that takes place in Exodus. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, 10 generations, until they cried out and God heard their cry and liberated them with a mighty hand. From there, God moves to the second story. God says, O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. Now, we often know the story of Balaam as the story when the donkey began to talk to a man. But when you look closely at what the story of Balaam is, it's when God sees the Israelites traveling through Moab, and God speaks not to an Israelite prophet, but to a Moabite prophet. And God asks the Moabite to speak on behalf of God to the king of Moab. And so the Moabite prophet, a man named Balaam, speaks on behalf of God to defend Israel. And the king asks this prophet Balaam three times to curse Israel, and Balaam refuses three times and instead blesses Israel three times, thus avoiding war and conflict with Moab. 
God cites this as the second story in the trial before the mountains. And in the fifth verse, God tells a third story. God says, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Now, if you were a good Israelite hearing these words, you would know that God is citing a very specific story. Because Shittim and Gilgal are on either side of the Jordan River. And God is asking the people in front of the mountains to remember the story about how God parted the waters of the Jordan River and allowed Joshua and the Israelites to cross into the promised land on dried land. So here, before the mountains, God tells three stories. The stories of liberation from slavery, the stories of intervening with a foreign prophet from a different religion, and the stories of the Israelites going into the promised land guided by a miraculous sign from God. So here we have three stories that are all unquestionably good, which is strange because when I read these stories, I can feel my defenses immediately going up because I have this sense that a guilt trip is about to happen. Here's God before the mountains saying to everyone with an earshot, hey, remember these three incredible things I did for you? And because this is in the Bible, we have this sense that God is going to say, well, I've done good things for you. I need you to do good things for me. And the reasons I feel my defenses going up is because I have a sense that I'm not going to like what God is about to ask. In other words, I'm preparing myself for a guilt trip. And a guilt trip is any time when your obligation to a gift overshadows the joy of that gift. Now, I'm anticipating a guilt trip because God starts this whole speech off by saying, I have a controversy and an accusation with you. And the way that God sets up and appeals to the mountains, we assume that God is very angry with the people of Judah. Now, before we go any further, we have to understand why that is. When you consider living 2,700 years ago in Judah, you have to understand that Micah is writing during a very specific time to a very specific people about very specific things. In fact, Micah tells us that he wrote his writings during the reigns of three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Due to extra-biblical sources, we can date the reign of those three kings to 760 to 685 BCE. So when Micah began to write, there was a sister nation to the north, the nation of Israel, which possessed 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And during Micah's lifetime in 722 BCE, Micah watched a nation, an empire to the north known as Assyria, come in and attack the nation of Israel and destroy the nation of Israel. And the only reason that Judah, which is where Micah is from, was allowed to survive was because their king Ahaz begged the Assyrians to spare them. So when Micah tells stories about God, and God seems a bit more intense than we're used to in America 2,700 years later, understand that living in Judah during Micah's day and age was a very intense experience. 
And so when Micah, living in Judah, sees all of this stuff unfolding and he believes God is living there with them, we can understand why Micah would use very intense language to describe the words of God. And so we read the words of Micah 2,700 years later in a much less intense experience. And while it comes across to us as a guilt trip, I don't think that was Micah's intent. Instead, I think Micah was trying to communicate a different word. And that word is grace. Micah says that God cites the story of liberation from the Egyptians. And God and Micah see that as grace. When a foreign prophet refused to comply and curse the Israelites, but instead chose to bless the Israelites and prevent a war, Micah sees that as grace. When God parted the waters of the Jordan and guided the Israelites across dry land into the promised land and gave them this land, Micah sees that as grace. When we talk about grace, I think it's important to define what that word means. Because I have found that grace is when we are the recipients of an abundance of goodness. And so when Micah tells this story about how God calls on the mountains to witness the behavior of God over multiple generations, the people of Israel and Judah, Micah then tells three stories about how Judah has received an abundance of goodness and how following God has only led the people of Judah to grace. Now, for just a moment, I'd like to talk about grace because I was recently the recipient of an abundance of goodness. To understand this story, you have to know that I love the band Gunger. Gunger is made up of a husband and wife creative music collective. The wife's name is Lisa, the husband's name is Michael, and their last name is Gunger. My friend Ashley first introduced me to Gunger back in 2011 when she said, you've got to hear this song, Beautiful Things. From that moment forward, I bought every one of their albums, six in all, and I have loved and devoured each of them. Now, I love their music for two major reasons. The first reason is I love to listen to it for pleasure, and it has brought me joy in ways that I can barely describe. The second reason I love their music is because I have spent a lot of time as a pastor leading praise and worship teams. Now, there are a lot of praise and worship songs out there, and I have to tell you that most of them say the same thing over and over again, and a lot of the things they say are theologically questionable. Gunger, on the other hand, Write songs that matter, that say something, that are provocative and invite you to think. And I have been drawn to this over and over again. And as I have led numerous praise and worship teams throughout the past decade, I have always been drawn to Gunger and been grateful to Gunger because they have essentially given me the tools to lead worship in a meaningful way. So there are many happy memories I have of leading worship and they are filled with the soundtrack of the songs of Gunger. Not only that, but they also put on a fantastic live show. I have seen them 11 times in concert, and I have loved every one of those concerts in their own way. 
One of my favorite moments happened shortly after these concerts, after concert number seven that I saw them, where I decided to post a picture of them on Instagram and talk about how much I appreciated their show. These are the words I wrote in that post. I said, Dear Gunger Music, Tonight made my soul soar with unicorns riding toward the sunset with the fury of 10,000 suns. Thank you. Now you may say this is a ridiculous thing to say, but I will tell you that Vindication showed up the next morning when I received a reply from Gunger Music themselves with just four words. Best show compliment ever. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the highlight of my social media career. Just one more thing about Gunger. Back in May of 2018, we invited Lisa Gunger to be our guest speaker, and she spoke at Paradox, and she was fantastic. Now, I tell you all this because somewhere around album three and album four, Michael Gunger decided that he was an atheist. And it's a difficult thing to be a Christian music artist when you are an atheist. And so due to a number of complications, Michael and Lisa Gunger decided it was time to hang up the brand and band name Gunger and retire all of their songs. And they announced that this last tour in 2019 would be their last tour ever as Gunger. And I've got to tell you, I was fan heartbroken. I mean, it's a sad thing to see a band that you love so much decide that it's time to end. Now, what's fortunate about the situation is that on their last tour, their last stop was in Los Angeles. And so on May 6, I got to go see them. And it was an experience that I would not trade for much. My word. They were going through the songs and I just kept thinking this is the last time I'm going to hear them play this song. They invited special guests out that I'd seen on previous tours. They played a lot of my favorites. They left off some of my favorites too. But as the concert was wrapping up, there was this moment where they invited everyone that had ever created music with them up on the stage. And there they stood, this collective known as Gunger. And I cheered and I clapped as loud as I could. After this last thing, they went off the stage. We brought them back on for an encore. And Michael Gunger picked up an acoustic guitar and started playing What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. And then his brother sang Do You Realize by the Flaming Lips. And then they brought it back home with an original song that none of us had heard before. The lyrics to that song went simply like this. If this is the end of all that was, then oh, what a beautiful world. Have you ever heard the words or said the words, I'm so happy right now, I could die? What is that? I think what that is, is an admission of grace. In other words, we have received so much and it is so good that we dare not ask for more. Because if we were to ask for more, then it would show that we did not appreciate the grace that had been shown to us. So we talk about dying in that moment and making peace with our death, which is a rather crass way to speak about it. Along comes a poet, though, and figures out a better way to say it. If this is the end of all that was, then oh, what a beautiful world. And on those notes, saturated in grace, 
the band Gunger was brought to a close. Grace, when we are the recipients of an abundance of goodness. Micah writes about God calling on the mountains to testify that God has shown grace to the people of Israel. So how have you received grace? Because the next words of Micah are meant only for the person who is perceiving and feeling grace in their own life. And so you have to think about grace before you hear the next words, because without that, you have lost the depth and the nuance of what Micah is about to say. For me, I'd like to talk about the grace I have received as a fan from the band Gunger. When I think about the late nights in the studio and the times they spent obsessing over just the right drum sounds, I received it all as a sign of grace. And I am grateful for the energy and the time that this couple and the musicians around them put into these records and these shows. So how have you seen grace in your life? Think about that for just a moment. With grace in our minds, there is a person who comes forward in verse 6 to represent the nation of Judah. After thinking about the amount of grace they have received, this person comes forward as a spokesperson and says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, these questions are rooted in the book of Leviticus because the book of Leviticus would tell this person that, yes, the way you respond to grace is through this sacrificial religious system. And so you have been the recipient of grace, and the proper response is for you to follow what is in the chapters of Leviticus. But after thinking about this, the spokesperson says, no, it has to be more. He then goes on to say, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah responds in verse 8 with these words, God has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In Micah's mind, there are only three appropriate responses to grace, justice, kindness, and humility. Now, what's interesting about this response is that when most people think of the word faith, they think of what shows up when you type the word faith into Google image search. Namely, there's some clouds, there's a sunset, there's sunbeams coming through the clouds, and there's a person with their arms spread out with the words, I believe in bold capital letters above them. We have this idea that faith is ultimately about the ability to believe ridiculous things. In Micah chapter 6, Micah tells us God doesn't really care what you believe, but God does care what you do. Now, Christians may hear these words and want to argue with me, understandably. After all, Christianity places a lot of emphasis on what an individual believes. 
And so they'll start to point to other Bible verses and other books of the Bible and say, see, this person here says what, that what we believe matters. Now, I understand that, and I'm not disagreeing with it, but Micah would disagree with those other authors. Micah adamantly believes that it doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters and comes down to what you do and if you do justice. Now, when we talk about the word justice, we have to define what justice is. Justice is when we declare what is evil and actively work against it. Without saying that something is evil, we can't really work against it. And if we just declare something is evil without doing anything about it, well, then that becomes hypocrisy. To talk about justice, I'd like to talk about three different things. The first thing is gun control. The second thing is racial division. And the third thing is abortion. Because that's the way we roll here at Paradox. Now, before we go any further, I need to give a few disclaimers. The first disclaimer is this. If you disagree with something that I say, then welcome. I'm glad that you're listening to this podcast. We here at Paradox don't believe that the sermon is meant to be the end-all, be-all of every discussion. Rather, sermons at Paradox are meant to start discussions. And if you disagree with me by the end of this podcast, you can send me an email and express your disagreement, and I do my best to answer every email. My email address is craig at paradoxredlands.com, and I would love to talk to you more in depth about these things. Now, the second thing is, what we have found is that people in society are isolating and siloing more and more and more due to social media. Because of this phenomenon, what happens is you only spend time speaking to and hanging out with people that you unanimously agree with. Church is the exception to this rule. And church is the place where we come together and we sit side by side with people that we disagree with. So church at its best in 2019 in America will find ways to unify and work toward justice on the fronts of abortion, racial division, and gun control rather than dividing people further and further. You with me? Which leads to our last disclaimer. There are those who would say, well, the Bible's not political, so the people in the pulpit shouldn't be political either, to which I would heartily disagree. The prophets are extremely political. They are not partisan, but they are very much interested in the way that a system, a governmental system, organizes and affects its people. And in particular, the prophets are concerned with the poor and the powerless who are suffering because of that system. So the Bible is often political, but it is never partisan. So let's see if we can work toward justice in a unifying manner that transcends partisan politics and is helpful to you and me. So let's start with gun control. Here in America, we have too many mass shootings because one mass shooting is too many and we have many more than one. Now what is not partisan is the fact that we can all declare that these shootings are in fact evil. Where justice is lacking though is that justice requires us to declare the mass shooting is evil and then actively work against it. 
When it comes to mass shootings, there are often two root causes that are given for mass shootings. One is the shooter had a mental illness, or two, it's far too easy for people to acquire and buy firearms in America. Now, I have met gun owners who buy guns and own guns and look at mass shootings and declare them as evil and then get involved in their community to actively help the mental health problems that America faces. I think where all of us get incredibly frustrated is when we look at politicians who blame mental illness for this problem and then those same politicians turn around and make healthcare access for the mentally ill more difficult to obtain. They make healthcare for the mentally ill more expensive or more inaccessible or more difficult to acquire. This is hypocrisy at its worst. We should provide better healthcare for the mentally ill. And anytime a politician stands up and blames mental illness for these shootings, we should ensure and hold these politicians accountable that they are also working to provide better health care for the mentally ill. That is what we call working toward justice. Now, if you think the root cause is the ease of access to purchase guns, I will tell you that you are not alone. In fact, every gun owner I have spoken to supports more in-depth background checks for anyone who buys a gun, particularly to prevent anyone who has a mental illness from owning a gun. So for us to work toward justice, we should conduct a background check for anyone who buys a gun. This idea is supported by the overwhelming majority of gun owners. And we should be able to put partisanship aside and work toward justice to ensure that another mass shooting never happens again on American soil. Which brings us to racism and justice. There's a fantastic author named Ijema Aluo who wrote a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. To any of my white brothers and sisters out there listening, if you're struggling to communicate ideas about race and you're not sure why everything you say offends people of color, this is a fantastic place for you to start to learn and read what it's like to be an ethnic minority in America today. Anyways, this author was doing a Q&A session about her book. And at this session, a white man raised his hand and said, hey, Ajema, I read one of your articles online called Confronting Racism is Not About the Needs and Feelings of White People. So the man asking this question said, in this article that you wrote, you really hurt my feelings. You made me feel really bad for being a white person. And I want you to know that if you want my help in solving the race issue, you've got to use nicer words to help me and my feelings, so I want to help you. Now, immediately, Ajema smelled this out, and she responded by saying, when I'm talking about white supremacy, what do you think I'm talking about? The man responded by saying, uh, like when white people get opportunities that black people don't, like getting called on first, and, and then it's here that Ajema cut him off. She said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about racism, I'm talking about that in 2010, the median wealth of white households was nine times the wealth of Hispanic households. In 2013, the number got worse because the median wealth of white households was 10 times the wealth of Hispanic households. 
She then went on to say, when I'm talking about racism, I'm talking about how in 2010, the median wealth of white households was eight times the wealth of black households. But just three years later, that number had ballooned to 13 times the wealth of black households. And so she went on to say, when I'm talking about racism, I'm never, not ever talking about you and your feelings. She also talked about how black kids are more likely to be suspended in school, how black men are more likely to go to prison, and how black people, when pulled over for traffic stops, are much more likely to be shot and killed by a police officer. She then wrapped it up by saying, this is what racism is. And when I hear the Jema Oluo story, it makes me think of my own theology and several other white Christians' theology as well. Something that's central to a lot of Christian theology in America today is this idea of original sin. That Adam and Eve sinned back then, and because they sinned back then, we have to live with their consequences of sin today. Now, I grew up with this understanding of God and this understanding of original sin, and I believed it. Until a couple years ago, I stopped believing in original sin. But the crazy part is, I think I've started believing in original sin again. And I wish we could get more white Christians to specifically believe in original sin as well. Because when you talk about the United States of America, this country was founded with two original sins. The first original sin was the country's treatment of the indigenous people who were already here when we began to colonize this place. And the second original sin was the racially motivated chattel slavery that built the economy that we are enjoying the fruits of today. And what's fascinating to me is that I hear Christians over and over again talk about original sin and how we have to live with the consequences of Adam and Eve. And then those same Christians turn around and they hear black Americans talk about how slavery has still impacts and economic implications for us today. And they respond by saying, well, they just need to get over it. They just need to move on. And when Ajemo Oluo cites the Pew Research Center and says, hey, this racial wealth gap is only increasing as the years go by, what she's saying is that this is an injustice. This is evil. Your household income should not be dependent on the color of your skin. So when we talk about justice and racial equality and racial division, I think that what we need to talk about is that every human being should have the same opportunity to pursue a life worth living. This is not a partisan issue. We should all be working toward this ideal because that is what justice is. And what Micah tells us is the appropriate response to grace is for us to do justice. Which brings us to abortion. Now, just a few weeks ago, HB 314 hit the floor of the Alabama Senate. HB 314 restricted abortions to only be allowed in the state of Alabama if a mother's health was in grave danger. HB 314 outlawed abortions for victims of rape or incest, which specifically impacted, without question, girls who were ages 16 to 19 more than anyone else. There was a lively discussion on the Senate floor in Alabama when HB 314 went for a vote. 
No discussion was livelier, though, than between Clyde Chambliss, a senator who was for the bill, and Linda Madison, who was opposed to the bill. Clyde Chambliss at one point said that this law, HB 314, won't affect women until they are known to be pregnant. Senator Madison responded by saying, well, what do you mean by that, known to be pregnant? Clyde Chambliss said, well, if you don't know, then you are not known to be pregnant. To which Senator Madison just lowered her head into her hands for a dramatic facepalm. Looking down, she said these words into the microphone. I guess that's a typical male answer. You don't know what you don't know because you've never been pregnant. And herein is the problem. You can't get pregnant and you don't know what it's like to be pregnant. After the discussion concluded, HB 314 passed 25 to 6 on the Alabama Senate floor. And when you look at the 25 people who voted for this bill, they are all men. Of the 31 people who voted on this bill, only three were women. In the Washington Post, Megan Flynn wrote about this decision. She writes, while women comprise 51% of Alabama's population, they make up just 15% of the legislature among the worst gender ratios in the country. So here you have a state who is 51% female with a legislature that makes all of the laws and rules that is only 15% female. Why isn't the Alabama Senate 51% female? Wouldn't that change the discussion of abortion dramatically? Now, it's here that someone might point to the Alabama House of Representatives and the governor of Alabama and say there are female leaderships both above and below. But remember, we're talking about only 15% of the legislature is female, and these people are making significant decisions about women's bodies. And justice is when we can declare what is evil and then actively work against that. To not have equal representation of women in legislature is evil. It's oppressive. It's irresponsible. So we have to do a better job at electing female leaders. And when we talk about justice in this story, I believe that justice is that our politicians should reflect our populace. When we work to provide better health care for the mentally ill, when we work to make sure that every person has the same opportunity to pursue a life worth living, and when we work to elect leaders who reflect our populace, that is when we are doing justice. And according to Micah, that is the best response to grace we can offer God. So when you look at these two words, grace and justice, what Micah longs for you and for me is to find a harmonious balance between the two. I have found that if you work toward justice all the time, you end up angry and frustrated. I have also found that if you only believe in grace and that everything is awesome all the time, that you find this life to be incredibly boring. The balance that God offers us is a balance where we take one day off a week 
And in that day that we take off a week, we soak in the grace and the goodness of what it means to be alive. And as the sun goes down, we work toward another week of justice. My brothers and sisters, may we remember that grace is the inspiration and justice is the work. May we inhale grace and exhale justice because that is all that the Lord requires of us. May you see and embrace Christ in all. Amen.